So a father walks into his backyard uh, to find his son uh, strenuously tugging on the limbs of a a two-year-old tree. The father asks, what are you doing, son? The son replies, you told me to clear the trees. The father says, yeah, I, I also told you where we keep the chainsaw. Why aren't you using the tools I gave you? A fourth grade teacher walks into his classroom during recess to find a group of his students working with pieces of construction paper. Some pieces folded in various configurations, some rolled up tight, some torn in various fashions. And the kids trying to get all these pieces of paper to hold together to build something. The teacher asks, students, what are you doing? The students reply, you told us to construct a paper building. The teacher says, yeah, I also told you where we keep the tape and the glue and the scissors and the staplers. Why aren't you using the tools I gave you? I invite you to turn with me to James, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You can find it on page 231 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James, chapter 5, verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let us pray. Father, We thank you that you invite us, that you even command us to to bring our burdens, our requests, our prayers, and our praises before you. Help us now to think rightly about the gift and the power of prayer. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so we're rounding the bend on the last leg of James's letter uh, with his concluding remarks bringing some of his opening remarks full circle. You might recall the the very direct, somewhat jarring and challenging start of the letter of James, where where James began the body of his letter with the command to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Thus signaling to us right from the start what kind of letter this is. It's a letter written to people who are facing trials. It's a letter filled with challenging commands containing more commands per verse than any other book of the Bible. And many of those commands being focused on the need to persevere in our trials. And not just to persevere, but to persevere with cheer. Persevere with cheer. The first four, book, the first four verses of the body of James's letter, they move from trials to steadfastness to prayer. Trials, steadfastness, prayer. And that's the the very same sequence with which he is closing out the letter. James chapter 5 began with the trials being faced at the hands of the wicked wealthy who are oppressing these poor, vulnerable Christians. 
their trials. And then that was followed in chapter 5, verse 7, by a call to emulate the steadfastness, particularly of Job, in the face of those trials, patiently waiting upon the Lord. Leading now to our passage today on prayer. It's the same sequence, trials, steadfastness in those trials, and prayer. In the previous passage, uh, we saw seven occurrences of some form of the word wait, or be patient, or be steadfast. In today's passage, we see seven occurrences of some form of the word for pray. So we had wait, 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 wait. How? Pray, 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 pray. Is this how you are patiently waiting upon the Lord to accomplish His good purposes through you? Is your life marked by prayer? Turning again to verse 13, He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Uh, This word for suffering is quite broad. It's really a word that can be used to cover hardship of of any kind. All of the the thorns and thistles of life on this side of the fall. It's used twice in the book of 2 Timothy, uh, specifically to refer to persecution faced by Christians. So this word for for suffering, it clearly covers persecution, but, but the same root word, was just used in the the book of James in the previous passage to speak of the suffering of the prophets and the steadfastness of Job. Well, Job's suffering was not a matter of persecution for the name of Christ, but rather it was the loss of his family, the loss of his property, the loss of his health. Great suffering from trials of various kinds covers all hardship. So we're commanded, is anyone among you suffering Let him pray. Again, it's a command. If you are suffering, you must pray. Why? Well, because this is the only path to steadfastness. This is the only way to persevere with cheer through prayer. As Psalm 62 verse 8 says, Trust in the Lord at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him in prayer, God is a refuge for us. God alone is our refuge in the storms of life, a refuge found through prayer as you pour out your heart before Him. All other attempts to to overcome our trials or to, to remain steadfast in the midst of those trials, whether it be trusting in medicine or in politicians or in self help practices or whether it be turning to distractions, all other responses to suffering, they're like trying to to bring down a tree with nothing but your hands. It can't be done without the proper tools. And the tool given to us to persevere with cheer is prayer. So pray, knowing that there is power in the prayers of a Christian. There's power in the prayers of a Christian. Or skipping ahead for a moment to the language of verse 16, where he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, maybe that doesn't sound particularly encouraging to you. Maybe you immediately recognize how unrighteous you are. So that this promise of power for the righteous person is no no comfort to the likes of you. But who then is this word of comfort for, if not for you? Who is the the righteous person to whom this applies? Remember the gospel, 
brothers and sisters. Remember the good news by which you have been saved. The good news that begins with the bad news that none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.9 For God alone is righteous, but the righteousness of God is received through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3.22 This is the gospel. All who place their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins are clothed in His righteousness. So that when they come before their Heavenly Father in prayer, their cries are not heard as the cries of an unrighteous rebel sinner, but as the cries of the righteous Son of God. Our prayers have power because they are not offered in our own name, upon the basis of our own righteousness. Our prayers have power because they're offered in the name of the only righteous one upon the basis of His righteousness in which we are clothed. Every Christian can be comforted in the knowledge that their cries to God, as James puts it in verse 4, their cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the commander of heaven's armies. He hears, He cares, and He will answer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It's quite a a contrast. Notice that while the call for prayer was connected with suffering and thus with specific kinds of circumstances that cause suffering, the call for praise is not connected with any particular set of circumstances or kind of circumstances. It's connected with cheer. The point being There's always cause for cheer in the hearts of the Christian. And thus, there is always cause for praise, no matter your circumstances. And notice that this too is a command. Put it this way, if you're happy and you know it, sing praise. We were made to sing. Now, while it's true that most of you know I'm not a particularly skilled singer, Well, that that doesn't change the fact that I have been made in the image of a singing God. And thus, I have been made to sing. You see, it's it's not a matter of personality or of personal preferences. It's a matter of personhood. Every person has been made to sing, for we have all been made to worship. and, And a fundamental expression of that worship is song. Last week, I I pointed out part of the progression that we're seeing in James' letter from verses 11 to, to 13. Verse 11, it draws attention to God's words to us. God's words to us, specifically His promises. Verse 12 then draws attention to our words to each other. Our words to each other, namely our vows and our assurances of truth. Well, verse 13 here, it draws attention to our words to God. Our words to God, words of prayer and of praise. This is central to what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who speaks with God. Because to be a Christian is to possess a living faith. And faith is expressed through prayer and praise. Where there is faith, there will be prayer and there will be praise. Where there is no prayer, and where there is no praise, there is no faith. Is your life marked by words of prayer and praise spoken to God? 
It can be. You can have an audience with your maker through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The curtain separating us from the presence of our Heavenly Father has been torn in two. By His blood, the new and living way has been opened for us. So then, quote, let us draw near with true heart and full assurance of faith. Hebrews 10.22 The curtain has been torn in two. By His blood, we are ushered in to draw near to the presence of God in full assurance of faith. Knowing that there is power in the prayers of a Christian. But power for what exactly? What's the content of these prayers? The context of the letter thus far has been steadfastness in trials, persevering with cheer, finding refuge in God in the midst of the suffering as we entrust ourselves to God's purposes for us, asking that our wills be conformed to His will for our lives. As we sang earlier, let our wills be conformed with His not our will, but yours be done. That's first and foremost the context for these, these prayers. But is there more to be said about the content of these prayers and what their power is for? Well, well, yes, James continues, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay, first, who, who are these elders of the church? The word elder, sometimes translated presbyter, is used interchangeably in the New Testament with the word overseer. Overseer, sometimes translated bishop. And both of those are used interchangeably with the word pastor, sometimes translated shepherd. So it's elder, pastor, overseer. It's one office, elder, pastor, overseer. For example, uh, two key passages that use all three terms interchangeably to refer to the same group of men is the middle of Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, where Paul addresses the elder pastor overseers of the church in Ephesus. That's one place. And then the second place where all three terms are used interchangeably is the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter does the same thing to refer to the same group of people. They're all the elder pastor overseers of that church. Notice that, that here in James chapter 5, he speaks of the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Well, this is the way that elder pastor overseers are always spoken of in, in, in Scripture, always in the plural, showing that, that God's intention, the, the ideal design for any local church is for there to be a plurality, a board of elder pastor overseers who are, who are shepherding that particular flock of God. The elder pastor overseers, they're the ones who, quote, will have to give an account before God for how they have kept watch over your souls, Hebrews 13, 17. They're the ones in the church to whom you turn for, for spiritual counsel. In your struggle with sin, in your struggle with anxiety and depression, grief and pain, in your struggle with sickness, in your wrestling with difficult life decisions, in your questions about God, questions about His world, questions about His Word, they're the ones you turn to. They're the spiritual shepherds of the church, to sum it up. There's the ones who are, are specially gifted to minister, to, to wield God's Word. For the Scriptures are the shepherd's rod and staff. And here in James, we see that directly related to their work of ministering God's Word is their work of praying for God's people. And specifically, of praying for those who are sick. 
Now, while some in the past have tried to argue that that James here in chapter 5, verse 14, is only referring to spiritual weakness when he talks about sickness and not physical illness, the most natural reading of these verses is physical illness, saying, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Uh, It seems to be describing somebody who is too sick to come to the elders so that the elders have to come to the sick person. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, over him. It seems to be a description of a person who is lying on a sick bed so that the elders must pray standing over the sick person, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Again, it seems to be describing a person being restored and at some point rising from that sickbed. Physical ailments. Notice somewhat in passing that it's just assumed that every Christian will have elder pastor overseers on whom to call. Which is to say, that it's just assumed in the New Testament that every Christian will be a member of a church. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian disconnected from the membership of a local church having elder pastor overseers on whom to call. But what's this business about anointing with oil? Might sound a little odd to us. Well, a similar activity is only mentioned in one other place in the New Testament. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. I'll read it. Jesus called the twelve apostles to him and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It's the only other place. Okay, so what does it mean? What does it mean in James chapter 5 that the elders are to anoint with oil? Well, three questions are quickly raised, right? What's the purpose of the oil? Is oil essential to the prayer of faith for the sick? Do we have to use oil? And third, Is this a promise of healing? Is it a certainty? The first question, what's the purpose of the oil? In short, we're not told. I don't know. Um, Unlike uh, the water that's involved in baptism, or the bread and the cup that are involved at the Lord's table, where the, the symbolism of the elements involved is explained to us, no such explanation is given for this oil whether in Mark chapter 6 or James chapter 5, and that's all we have. And while that's not to say that, that we shouldn't utilize oil in times of prayer, it's simply a warning to do so cautiously, being careful not to think that the oil has some mystical power in and of itself to heal, like, like pagan magic. If you're going to use oil, that's fine, but give thought to what you see it as communicating. For example, in, in the first century, uh, the application of oil It was one of the best-known medical treatments for many ailments, and thus the anointing of oil here in James, it it could be intended to picture the healing that's being requested in prayer, right? Because it's associated with healing in in medicine, so anointing the person with oil could be a, a picture of what you're praying will happen to them, that they will be healed. Alternatively, uh, because the anointing of oil in the Old Testament had to do with setting apart some instrument or setting apart some person to be devoted to the service of God in the temple, well, the anointing of oil in James could picture the entrusting of this person's life to the service and thus the will of God, whatever that will may be. 
healing or otherwise. And thus, uh, the anointing of oil could be a, a humble expression of our dependence upon God and His designs. Whatever the case, if oil is used, let it be an expression of faith. Don't let it be the object of faith. That's my point. The object of faith must be the Lord, in whose name the oil is administered, not the oil itself. Do you see the difference? The object of faith is the Lord. The oil is just an expression of that faith. Don't let it become the object of faith. Don't trust in the oil if you use it. But the second question is, is oil essential to the prayer of faith for the sick? Do we have to use oil? When the Apostle Paul uh, was shipwrecked on the island of Malta, uh, right at the end of Acts, the book of Acts, he was shipwrecked along with his captors who were taking into Rome for his trial. Uh, we read this, Acts 28, verse 8. It happened that the father of uh, Publius, the island chief on the island of Malta, lay sick. The chief's, um, yeah, the father, uh, the, so the island chief, chief lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Did God heal the sick man through the prayers of the Apostle Paul in Acts 28? Yes. Did it involve anointing with oil? Apparently not. There's no mention of oil there. There's no mention of oil in the rest of the book of Acts nor in the rest of the epistles apart from this one verse. And that makes it hard to make this a law. Furthermore, there are many records of Jesus healing people throughout the Gospels, right? We're very well acquainted with that, but there's never any mention of oil. Now, that's certainly not to say that it's wrong to use oil, just that it's hard to make it out to be a law, especially since we're not told the significance of it. So do we have to use oil? It doesn't appear so. Third question is this a promise of healing? Is it a promise of healing when the elders come anointed with oil and pray for the sick person? Well, let me answer that question with a question. Were the prayers of the apostles for healing always answered? No. How do we know? Because they're all dead. And everyone they ever ministered to is dead. Every Christian who ever lives will eventually die. And that's usually accompanied by a sickness of some kind. The fact that Christians die appears to have been troubling the church in Thessalonica during the age of the apostles. So the apostle Paul had to write to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, to assure them that those who die before the Lord returns will not miss out on His return. In fact, they'll be with the Lord when He comes in the clouds. Notice, Paul doesn't rebuke the church in Thessalonica for having failed to keep everyone alive through the prayer of faith, does he? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Paul wrote that he had to leave Trophimus behind in Miletus because Trophimus was ill. He had to leave him behind. If Paul could have healed him, if it was a guarantee promise of healing through this means, would he not have done so rather than leaving his trusted companion behind? 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, we see that Timothy was afflicted with frequent ailments. So Paul instructed him to use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Nothing about anointing with oil or the prayer of faith to bring healing. Not that it would have been inappropriate to anoint Timothy with oil and to pray for him. That's entirely appropriate. But the point is, there is clearly no promise of healing for Christians. We must allow Scripture to interpret 
Scripture. Let what is clear elsewhere clarify what is vague or unclear here. Let what is explicit elsewhere restrict what might seem to be implied here. Timothy suffered ailments. Paul suffered ailments, Galatians 4, 13. Epaphroditus suffered ailments, Philippians 2, 26. And they all died. But one day, they will all be raised up. And that's the promise. It's interesting that James uses resurrection language here in this passage, in verse 15, saying, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. There's ambiguous language here. The word for save appears five times in this letter. And all four of the other occurrences of the word save in the letter of James clearly refer to eternal salvation, not to physical healing. The word for raise up is likewise ambiguous, usually in the New Testament referring to final resurrection, not to physical healing. So it may be that James intends for this verse to be ambiguous recognizing the possibility of temporary healing, but the promise of ultimate healing. That's possible. Or there might be something special about this prayer of faith that he talks about. That phrase, prayer of faith, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible, only here. In fact, the word that he uses for prayer here is not the usual word for prayer. It only appears two other times in the whole New Testament. It's quite possible that James is referring to a supernatural gift that God sometimes gives to people when they pray, where they're filled with this sense of assurance, this absolute confidence from God that He will answer the prayer in the manner that they have prayed it. It's a supernatural gift that's sometimes given, a prayer of faith. But whatever the case, whether we're talking about that, some sort of supernatural kind of prayer of faith that sometimes accompanies healing, or whether James is intentionally ambiguous, since God doesn't always heal in this life, don't miss the point. God can heal. And God often does heal. And He does so in response to the prayers of His people, and specifically here, the prayers of the elders of the church. So then we can say that there is power in the prayers of a board of elders, elder pastor overseers. There is power in the prayers of a board of elders. Now, before moving to to verse 16, uh, note the additional wrinkle added at the end of verse 15. He says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Why does James turn from sickness and the need for healing to sinfulness and the need for forgiveness? Well, he's he's moving from the lesser to the greater, as Jesus so often did when he healed the sick. He would move the discussion from the lesser gift of physical healing to the infinitely greater gift of spiritual healing, the forgiveness of sins. So there's that, that moving from the lesser to the greater. But beyond that, based on where James goes in the next sentence, he also appears to be addressing the fact that at times, our physical ailments are a result of our sin whether through natural consequences like like alcohol abuse or or because of the supernatural discipline of the Lord. The next sentence, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another. It's one thing to, to ask for forgiveness from those that we've sinned against. 
right? That's absolutely essential. You sin against somebody, you ask for their forgiveness. But why would we confess our hidden sins to one another? Confessing to people that we've not directly sinned against. Why would we do that? Well, he explains. It's so that others in the church can pray for us that we may be healed. It's because there is power in the prayers of a church. There's power in the prayers of a Christian. There's power in the prayer of a board of elders. And there's power in the prayers of a church at large as we all pray for one another. James further explains that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The immediate application of that that power is clearly in regard to physical ailments that are the result of unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Ailments that are a result of sin. Now, you be cautious here, both the book of Job and the account of the man born blind in, in John chapter 9 make abundantly clear that unrepentant sin, unrepentant sin is not always the cause of physical ailments. Because in, in, James says the same thing here, where he uses the word if in verse 15. He says, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. But that said, sometimes sickness is due to sin. And that's what's being addressed here. The Apostle Paul addressed an example of the Lord's painful discipline for the sins of his people in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As Paul explained, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died because of your unrepentant sin. Sometimes our sickness is meant by God to drive us to repentance. And part of walking in repentance is to bring fellow church members alongside us, confessing our hidden sins to them so that they may pray for us. Refusing to let others know how they can pray for both your physical and your spiritual burdens, it deprives you of the power of their prayers. There is power in the prayers of the church. And this applies regardless of whether or not you're experiencing physical ailments at all. Why deprive yourself of the power of the prayers of others for your spiritual battles, your struggle with sin? The depiction of the Christian life shown to us in scriptures is a life that takes sin seriously and is committed to to partnering with fellow church members to help each other pursue holiness together, confessing our sins to one another that we may pray for one another. That's the point of Paul's command in Galatians chapter 6, where he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's spiritual burdens, fighting sin together. We should not expect any measure of, of physical health or of spiritual health in this community of faith if we are not a people of confession, of sin, and of prayer. James concludes, verse 17, it says, Elijah, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That is, he was an ordinary man with an ordinary faith in an extraordinary God. He was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. That was part of God's supernatural discipline of the people of God for their unrepentant sin. Verse 18, then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. There is power in the prayers of the righteous. There's a sense in which there's nothing the world needs more than praying churches. Because what the world needs most is the further inbreaking and advance of the kingdom of God in the hearts of men and women on earth. 
And that can't and that won't happen apart from God's supernatural grace being poured out like rain upon this parched and barren land, causing this land to bear spiritual fruit. And this outpouring of God's grace upon people is always accompanied by God's people recognizing and seizing hold of the power of a praying church. The world needs praying churches. So let us get busy building God's kingdom on the earth. Let Him not come and say to us, why aren't you using the tools I gave you? Let us pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ the righteous. And thus we know that you hear our prayers and that you will respond to our prayers in accord with your perfect will. Help us to to grow in being a praying church that we may know your power at work in us and through us. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.